You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. G'day. It's uh, great to see you. Uh, We're going to jump into that passage in just a moment. But before we do, I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. Uh, Today's a great day for us to be able to express our thankfulness, appreciation uh, of our mums. Uh, Being a mum is something truly valuable and important. Now, in the providence of God, this passage actually gives us a wonderful example of a mother. Uh, We're told Simon's mother-in-law, she lay sick with a fever. A number of people came to Jesus and asked him to help her, which I think shows that this mother was a well-loved, well-cared-for woman by many. But we also see that when Jesus does heal her, uh, she immediately gets up and starts serving them. Um, which I think uh, we're meant to understand that actually the way that a mother serves so tirelessly is something honourable. And so uh, it's good that we can express our love and appreciation of that today, um, as we ought to every day. Um, Having said that, um, as Amy and Emma mentioned earlier, um, today's going to be a hard day for many. Uh, For any number of reasons, it's appropriate for us to grieve with one another, to bear one another's burdens in this. And if that's you, I'm glad you've come to church today. Uh, Because the profound truth of the gospel is that this isn't a social club. Um, We are a family because in Jesus we have the same heavenly father. And that means that we actually become mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters to one another. Not as a metaphor, but as a spiritual reality. And our hope and our prayer is that as a church, that spiritual reality would be lived out in the everyday of our lives as we care for one another. But more than that, our passage today, I think, actually has something deeply hope-filled and transformative to say into our deeply unnatural and broken world. I think there are two very simple things to learn from our passage today. Uh, The first thing we'll see is that Jesus cares, even about our smallest concern. But the second is that Jesus came for your greatest need. Jesus cares about even your smallest concern, but he came for your greatest need. And as we'll see, we actually need to keep both of these things in tension. Uh, Miss one and your faith will be lopsided, but put together and you'll have something deeply hopeful and transformative. So let's jump in. I want to show you that first thing. Uh, What we're going to see is that it plays out in two stories that Luke records for us. One about a man and one about a woman. But first, a little bit of context. You might remember from last week, Luke, he introduces us to the ministry of Jesus by explaining that Jesus, he was gaining popularity um, as a a teacher, um, as a worker of miracles. And then we heard last week, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And he gets up and he preaches a sermon. But that ends basically in a riot and with them trying to kill Jesus. And it ended that way because it had something to do with uh, Jesus' claim that he had been sent to proclaim good news, to set captives free. Well, at the start of our passage, we're told that Jesus, he has left Nazareth and he's gone to another nearby town, Capernaum. Uh, and on this particular Sabbath, he's in Capernaum teaching in the synagogue. Um, Sabbath uh, is a Saturday. 
Uh, it was the day everyone in this Jewish town would go to the synagogue. As Tim uh, mentioned last week, synagogue back in the first century, it actually would have looked pretty similar to what church looks like for us today. Um, they'd sing some songs, uh, they'd read the Bible, and then somebody would offer a teaching uh, in the form of a sermon. And on this particular Sabbath, Jesus is giving the sermon. Um, the atmosphere would have been just like electric. And people are squeezing in just so they can hear this man teach. Um, everyone's eyes are glued to Jesus. Um, it would have been one of those were you there moments. Um, were you there when Ash Barty finally won the Australian Open? Um, were you there when John Mayer played an intimate gig at the Metro Theatre? You wish you were. Were you there when Jesus came to preach at Capernaum? And we're told in verse 32 that everyone was amazed because he taught with authority. But there's another reason why this particular Sabbath uh, was such a were you there moment. Uh, that's because something a little distracting happened. Um, and I don't just mean distracting like other oh, preachers, Mike. You know, there, there were some issues. The, the slides, they didn't work. No. Look at what happened with me. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In terms of distractions, that one's pretty distracting. You can imagine Jesus um, teaching away and then all of a sudden this man walks in and he starts screaming um, his lungs out. This man is possessed by a demon. I want to pause there for a moment and ask, what are we meant to make of that? A demon, demon possession. Um, this is actually the first account of demon possession that Luke records. He's going to record several others as we go. But since this, this is the first one, I think it's worth pausing, asking, what do we make of this? It could be that you're here. You're checking out Jesus, the things of faith. Uh, it's fantastic. But you're thinking, yet yeah, this is why I find it so hard to believe the Bible. Um, I like some of Jesus' teaching. But this stuff about demons and miracles, um, you know, this stuff belongs in a Stephen King novel, not a world governed by science. And quite frankly, even if you're not that, quite that sceptical, most of this stuff is still pretty foreign for us. So what should we make of it? Well, I think this passage says something both about the Bible's culture and our culture. So what does it say about the Bible's culture? Well... When we come to the Bible, our default assumption might be to say that, well, these people, they lived a very long time ago, before modern science and medicine. Um, they clearly just didn't have an understanding of medical conditions like we do today. And so they used spiritual categories to describe the things they didn't understand. It's nothing more than naive superstition. But we know better. The implication being is that the Bible is full of naive superstition, not accurate history. And to some extent, I think there's actually some validity to that way of thinking. There's an article in the Medical Journal of the Islamic World Academy of Sciences. Uh, it's written by a, a paediatric expert in fevers at the Royal College of Paediatrics in London. Doctor, 
big doctor. This is what he says. The oldest civilizations, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Chinese, Indian, and Greek, demonstrated extensive knowledge of fever, but tended to view it as being induced by evil spirits. Hence, exorcism was used in many ancient cultures for the treatment of fever. Now, what is that? It's naive superstition. Ancient cultures, they had some understanding of fevers, but they still believed it was all caused by demons. Bad diagnosis. Naive superstition. But. But the most interesting thing is that the Bible is actually the only ancient worldview to distinguish between demons and diseases. The Bible doesn't buy into naive superstition. Listen to what this um, author of that medical journal goes on to say. Certainly, the biblical record contains no indication that fever was caused by demons or evil spirits. Now, remember, this is written by a doctor in a medical journal, not a Christian, as far as I can tell. And what he says is that the Bible is the only ancient culture that didn't buy into naive superstition. The Bible is the only one to distinguish between demons and diseases. And that's actually exactly what Luke does in this passage. Did you notice we have a story about a man who had a demon and a woman who had a fever? Luke sees them as being different things. Luke, the author of this gospel, he was actually a doctor by trade. Um, He was a doctor. And when he describes uh, Simon's mother-in-law, he actually uses a technical medical term. Something like a doctor might uh, say today that somebody is febrile. Uh, A little later in the passage, down in verse 40, we're told that multitudes of people with diseases came to Jesus and he healed them. And Luke says, also, he cast demons out of many. So there's a distinction there. Demons and also diseases. And that distinction is actually totally unprecedented in the ancient world. The Bible does say that sometimes there is a connection between spirituality and sickness. But the Bible doesn't buy into the kind of naive superstition that existed in every other ancient culture. Which I think should give us confidence in the historical reliability of the Bible. But here's the thing. This passage doesn't just say something about the Bible's culture. It also says something about our culture. Let me put it to you this way. If almost every ancient culture missed something because of their overemphasis on spiritual categories, could it be that actually our culture is also missing something by downplaying spiritual realities? They bought into naive superstition. Have we bought into naive scientism? Um, Are we actually blind to the reality of spirituality in this world? Um, Other ancient cultures, they would have looked at this man and this woman and they would have seen the same thing, just a demon. Is it that we look at this man and this woman and we just see the same thing, just a fever? Luke says, no, there's a distinction. Humans aren't reducible to scientific processes. We have bodies, but we also have souls that need attending to. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says this, 
There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So just Grace, Grace City, just quickly, how do you respond when you hear about this man who had a demon? What error do you tend towards? Let's see how Jesus responds to this man. Have a look with me from verse 35. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. A couple of things to notice. First, notice Jesus didn't get frustrated with this man um, for interrupting his sermon. He could have asked for this man to be taken out so he could continue his sermon, but he doesn't. He stops and he has compassion on this man. Uh, Any sternness in Jesus' words is directed squarely at the demon out of tenderness for this man who was suffering. But notice as well that Jesus simply speaks. There's no jiggery-pokery. There's no hocus-pocus. He speaks and his word is powerful. And it's effective. We're told the demon came out without harming the man at all. Jesus doesn't do a half job. His word is powerful. But just before we move on to our second story about Simon's mother-in-law, I want to draw your attention to something. Uh, This will become important later on. Did you notice the question that the demon asked Jesus? He said, have you come to destroy us? Now, in and of itself, that question might not be all that interesting. But remember what we saw in the passage before this one? Uh, Jesus said he's been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to proclaim good news, uh, to proclaim freedom for captives and to set free the oppressed. And then there's a demon in the very next passage saying, have you come to destroy us? And by putting these two stories next to each other, I think Luke is wanting us to ask, what does it mean for Jesus to set the oppressed free, to proclaim freedom for captives, captives like this man in this synagogue? Does setting the oppressed free mean casting out demons? Is that what Jesus came to do? Is that why he came? I think that's the kind of the big question that Luke wants us to ask in this passage. Why did Jesus come? But Luke doesn't give us the answer quite yet. Before he does that, he tells us another story. Uh, the story is about Simon's mother-in-law. We're told in verse 38, um, Jesus, he left the synagogue and he went to Simon's house. We actually know from ancient Jewish, Jewish sources that It was common after synagogue, everyone would kind of split up and go to each other's houses to have lunch, which is an excellent idea uh, for building community, getting to know people. Um, Why don't you have somebody over for lunch today? Well, on that particular day, Jesus ended up at Simon's house for lunch. But as it happened, uh, Simon's mother-in-law, she was suffering from a high fever. Uh, She was in bed and we're told at the end of verse 38, a number of people came to Jesus and said, Can you help this woman? Can you help her? I just want to stop there and notice some of the differences between the man with a demon and this woman with a fever. Uh, On the one hand, 
Demon possession is a supernatural problem. It's caused by spiritual forces. A fever is a natural problem caused by natural processes, uh, infection, inflammation. But more than that, demon possession is hugely dramatic. It's an extraordinary thing. People would be talking about this man for weeks, months, maybe even years to come. But a fever was very normal and unremarkable. I mean, a fair few of us here today have had a fever in the last few months due to a, there's a virus going around. Um, put simply, nobody in the first century would have been excited by the news that a woman had a fever. But finally, it's worth saying that demon possession, it required a supernatural remedy. No doctor can heal a demon. But a fever can be treated by a doctor through natural remedies, even back in the first century. Now, fevers were dangerous in the ancient world, but put simply, a fever wasn't as big a deal as demon possession. But Grace City, here's what I want you to notice. Jesus doesn't write this woman off because she's somehow less needy. He doesn't write her off because healing her would be less spectacular than casting out a demon. He doesn't write her off because there might be less publicity in it. No, we're actually told that Jesus did exactly the same thing for this woman as he did for the man. Uh, Luke actually uses the same word to make the point. I'll show you that in the ESV. Verse 35, we're told Jesus rebuked the demon. And then verse 39 with Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. What's the point, Grace City? Jesus sees and cares about all our burdens, regardless of whether they are extraordinary and uncommon or whether they are unremarkable. And common. Uh, Luke, he really lands this point in the verses that follow. Once Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, we're told that a multitude of people started coming to Jesus, bringing people uh, with diseases for him to heal. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 40, Jesus laid his hand on each and every one of them and he healed them. Luke actually makes a point of that. If you go to Mark's gospel, you'll read the same story. And Mark just says, he laid his hand on them. But Luke says, he laid his hand on each and every one of them. The heart of Jesus is full of compassion for those who are sick and suffering. But more than that, Jesus actually stays with the sick and suffering well into the night. Did you notice, start of verse 40, the multitude of people start coming to him when? As the sun was setting. Which means Jesus would have been up well into the night, possibly even all night with the reference to daybreak at verse 42. At Jesus, he doesn't clock off when it hits 5 p.m. Sorry, guys, I'm done. No, he stayed up well into the night with these people. So, Grace City, Jesus cares about even your smallest concern. He sees it and he cares, no matter how small. He will stay with you well into the night. Are you stressed? Jesus sees it. Are you tired? Jesus sees it. Are you unhappy? Jesus sees it. 
Are you in financial difficulty? Jesus sees it. Are you experiencing relational breakdown? Jesus sees it. Are you fighting a battle with sickness? Jesus sees it. Are you weighed down by mental health? Jesus sees it. Are you struggling with infertility? Jesus sees it. Are you suffering? Jesus sees you. Listen to how Dane Ortland put it, puts it. The same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. The same one who reached out and touched lepers puts his arm around us today when we feel misunderstood and sidelined. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty, invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. But you might ask, how can Jesus see me and care about me when he is not here with me? Listen to what he goes on to say. Christ's heart is not far off, despite his presence now in heaven, for he does all this by his own spirit. Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Grace City, Jesus cares about even your smallest concern. Do you believe it? Do you feel it? But, and there is a but, because there is a second lesson for us to learn from this passage. You need both. If you miss one, your faith will be lopsided. Put both together and you will have life and truth. You see, while Jesus does care about even your smallest concern, he came for your greatest need. It's what I want to show you with the rest of our time together. Do you remember the question that that demon asked Jesus in that synagogue? Have you come to destroy us? It's a question about why Jesus came. Remember back to what Jesus said in the previous passage we looked at last week. Um, he was anointed to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the captives to set free the oppressed. But what does that mean? Who are the oppressed? Who are the captives? Um, we've had a few p- people in this passage who could be described that way. There's a man in a synagogue oppressed by a demon, a woman who was oppressed by a fever. Is that why Jesus came? Did Jesus come to exercise demons and to heal sickness? Well, in the final few verses of our passage, we're going to see a whole bunch of people get the answer to that question wrong. Have a look with me from verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So what did these crowds get wrong? They thought Jesus had only come come to be a healer 
and a teacher. They thought he'd only come to deliver sermons and to lay his hands on people and heal them. And that is why they tried to stop him from leaving to go to other towns. Um, Did you notice that? They tried to keep him from leaving them. Why would they do that? Because if Jesus only came to teach and to heal, then when he leaves your town, the healings stop. The sermon finishes. It's a purely localized and temporary understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But that is not why Jesus came. Have a listen to what he says in verse 43. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that is why I was sent. Why did Jesus come? To preach the kingdom of God. That is why he came. And did you notice uh, that same language from our passage last week? Jesus was anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to proclaim good news. The same language is used here. And so he's actually telling us what it means to preach good news to the poor. The kingdom of God. Here's the thing. What does that actually mean? Like, what is the kingdom of God? The challenge here is that Jesus doesn't really elaborate. The passage kind of just finishes there. And he doesn't tell us what it means. It would be tempting for us to jump to a different part of the Bible in order to answer that question. That would be okay. But I do wonder whether these two healings uh, in this passage actually give us a hint as to what the kingdom of God actually is. What if this man with a demon, this woman with a sickness, actually points us to a deeper brokenness in this world? And what if the way that Jesus heals them actually points to a deeper healing and restoration that he will bring? Listen to how the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann puts it. He says it like this. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God, to which the healings witness, restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Did you catch what he's saying there? He's saying something deep. He's saying that um, demons and sickness, they witness to a deep unnaturalness in our world. And when Jesus healed them, those healings, they were a witness beyond themselves to the lordship of God. Or we might say the kingdom of God, which restores creation to health. See, while Jesus truly and genuinely did care about every person he laid his hands on, those healings were themselves only small evidences of the greater reason why Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God. I think we can explain it like this. Jesus came to defeat Satan, sin, and death. Three things, Satan, sin, and death. Did you notice something odd about that question the demon asked? I, find, I think it's a fascinating question. Do you remember what he said? He said, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy 
us. Did you notice he said us rather than just me? And it's not as if he's using a royal we like the queen, you know, we are displeased. Um, In the next sentence, he says, I know who you are. So why does he ask Jesus if he came to destroy them, not just him? I wonder if this is actually a clue pointing us to the fact that this demon isn't just a one-off rogue demon doing his own thing, but he's actually part of a rival kingdom that is set in opposition to the kingdom of God. A little later in Luke's gospel, Jesus will actually identify that kingdom as the kingdom of Satan. Have a look at what he says in chapter 11, verse 18. Jesus says, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Did you notice that? God is the creator of all things. He made the world, he made everything in it, and as such, he is the rightful ruler of everyone and everything. That's the kingdom of God. But there is a rival kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. And everything unnatural, demonized and wounded in this world comes from that rival kingdom. That's the root of every injustice in this world. See, behind that one man who walked into that synagogue in Capernaum was not just one demon, but a greater demon, Satan. But we don't, we don't just need freeing from a greater demon. We also need healing from a greater sickness, sin. Underneath every fever and every disease is a greater sickness, sin. See, what's the power of Satan's kingdom? Satan doesn't expand his rule in this world through tanks, aircraft or warships. No, the power of Satan's kingdom is humanity's sin. A deep brokenness and unnaturalness inside each of us. Do you remember what the serpent uh, did in the Garden of Eden? He didn't strike Eve with a sword. He didn't even give her a poison apple like a wicked witch. He gave her a poison word. He tempted her. Did God really say? We know how that story ends. That's the power of Satan's kingdom, humanity's sin. We, all of us, are we are sick inside, unnatural, wounded, because we listen to a poison word. The end result of that is death, a death at work in our world now, and final death later. And when Jesus declares that he has come to preach the kingdom of God, What he's saying is, I have come to destroy Satan, sin, and death. He's come not to just destroy one demon in a small town called Capernaum back in the first century. No, he came to destroy the greater demon, Satan, to put an end to his rival kingdom. And he came not just to heal a poor woman's fever as she lay bedridden, but to cure the greater sickness, sin. And he came to defeat the last enemy, death. And he does this through his death and his resurrection. He died for our sins, taking the place that we rightfully deserved for our sins. And he was raised once and for all to defeat death, to give us victory. In doing so, bringing the kingdom of God. 
Grace City, that is why Jesus came. That is why he came. He came for your greatest need. But just as we finish, I want us to take a moment to ask, what does all of this mean for us? What do we do with all this? And I said at the start that there were two lessons for us to learn from this passage today. We need both of them if we're not going to have a lopsided faith. The first lesson is that Jesus cares about even your smallest concern. So Grace City, come to him. Bring your burdens to him because his yoke is light. His burden is light. He is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Are you weary? Come to Jesus. Are you suffering? Come to Jesus. Um, Are you weak? Come to Jesus. He bids you come because his heart overflows with compassion for you. But don't make the same mistake that the crowds in Capernaum did. Jesus didn't come just to improve your life. He didn't come just to make your life a little bit easier. He didn't come to give you health, wealth, and happiness. He came to defeat Satan's sin and death to bring the kingdom of God. So, Grace City, don't make the same mistake as those crowds in Capernaum. They were blind to spiritual realities. Don't be blind to spiritual realities. Um, Do you feel the weight of millions around the world facing the judgment of God with nothing to hide behind? Do you see a million opportunities to make an eternal difference? Do you see a million people who could experience a story of grace and redemption? Do you see with kingdom eyes? Kingdom eyes. Grace City, come to Jesus. Because he cares about even your smallest concern. But come with Jesus as he brings his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your son who is so tender and gentle with us. We pray that when the challenges of life come upon us that we would turn to you and that we would come to your son. And we pray, give us kingdom eyes to see spiritual realities, to feel their weight. Heavenly Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.